Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. It's time for another trip to Rome to continue the saga of the Julio-Claudian dynasty. Last time, we learned about Julius Caesar and his... friends is a bad way to put it. Well, we learned about the first triumvirate and how their actions led to Julius Caesar gaining a massive amount of power which allowed him to become dictator in perpetuity, at least until he was assassinated. Well, this time, we're picking up right after Caesar's assassination to follow the next big name in the Julio-Claudian dynasty, Octavian, aka Augustus, the first emperor of Rome. And wouldn't you know, he's gonna form a triumvirate of his own. His two fellow triumvirs are Marcus Antonius, better known as Mark Antony, and Marcus Aemilius Lepidus. Their story is a great example of the phrase, history repeats itself. As I said in the episode of the first triumvirate, when powerful men try to vie for equal power, it never turns out well. It's a story that will start with a quest for revenge and end with one man in control of an entire empire. Also, Cleopatra will be there, but I don't want to go too much into her story because of reasons. So, without further ado, let's begin the story. We're picking up right after the assassination of Julius Caesar in the late Roman Republic of the mid-first century BCE in Great Caesar's Ghost, It's Happening Again. <laughs> There's a lot to cover this episode, and since we are picking up almost exactly where we left off, there's not really any need for a background history lesson this time around. That's right, it's all story this episode. So to begin the story, let's learn about someone who is not a member of the Second Triumvirate. When it comes to the death of Julius Caesar, one name should come to mind. Et tu, Brute? So, who exactly was Marcus Junius Brutus, the infamous Brute of that quote? Brutus was a senator and descended from the semi-legendary figure Lucius Junius Brutus, who was said to have helped overthrow the last king of Rome, ensuring that Rome would never live under a tyrant again, and then he became one of the first consuls of the Republic. This will be very important in a moment. His father was also Marcus Junius Brutus, because hey, it's Rome, so why have a unique name? Our Brutus's father, who had the same name, was killed by Pompey the Great during one of the many rebellions in Rome within the first century BCE. His mother was a woman named Servilia, who is most well known for being the mistress of Julius Caesar. There was a false rumor that went around for a while that Brutus was actually the son of Caesar, but even historians during Brutus' life knew that this was wrong. Despite all that, mostly because Caesar and his mom were an item, Brutus and Caesar were very close during their political careers. So that becomes kind of awkward when Rome is torn apart during Caesar's civil war. On the one hand, Brutus is a senator and very much opposed to the concept of a Roman king. But if he sides with the Senate, he's also siding with Pompey, the man who killed his father. On the other hand, Caesar is sometimes seen as a surrogate father figure in Brutus's life. But Caesar's actions seem like he's gunning for a monarchy, and Brutus shares two-thirds of his name with his ancestor who overthrew the Roman monarchy. 
I don't know how much thinking it actually took for Brutus to make his decision, but he ended up joining Pompey's side. After all, his closest allies, including the politicians Cato and Cicero, had also joined Pompey's army. Well, as said in the last Rome episode, Pompey's army is defeated by Caesar. But luckily, Brutus wasn't a part of that defeat, at least not at the very end. After the Battle of Pharsalus, the big decisive battle where Caesar won and forced Pompey to retreat into his own assassination, Brutus deserted Pompey's army and rejoined with Caesar, where the dictator welcomed him with open arms. Now, Caesar is the dictator, and the anti-monarchs are really upset about this, so they begin calling out Brutus to live up to his family name and get rid of the new tyrant. There's no concrete evidence as to why Brutus joined with the conspirators who assassinated Caesar, all we know is that he eventually joined the group. It is said that Brutus managed to convince the others not to also kill Antony and Lepidus, who were some of Caesar's higher-ups. And Brutus helps assassinate Caesar, stabs him right in the middle of the Senate. Also, it's said that after killing Caesar, Brutus said, Sic Semper Tyrannus, which directly translates to, Thus ever to tyrants, essentially meaning all tyrants deserve death. This is the same phrase John Wilkes Booth said after killing Abraham Lincoln. Caesar's assassins, known as the Liberatores, actually stuck around in Rome for a little bit, kind of gauging whether or not the public agreed with their actions. Brutus then snuck out of Rome to hide out in Greece once Mark Antony and Octavian started getting the public to turn on the Liberatores. And thus would begin a new Roman civil war, and the introduction of the Second Triumvirate. Before we get to that though, let's meet the members of the Second Triumvirate. Who was Marcus Aemilius Lepidus? henceforth just called Lepidus to make it easier. Well, like every good Roman boy, he had the same name as his father. Papa Lepidus was one of the leaders of the Populares faction, the group in the Senate devoted to creating legislation that helped the common folks of Rome, after the faction was revived after the death of Sulla, and check out the last Julio-Claudian episode if you need a refresher on who he was. In his youth, our Lepidus was a huge fan of Julius Caesar. By the time Caesar was actually in charge of Rome, Lepidus was now an adult and able to swap his fanboy role for an actual position of power in Caesar's government. In 49 BCE, while Caesar went to fight the armies of Pompey, he placed Lepidus in charge of overseeing the city of Rome. It was Lepidus who helped guarantee Caesar's appointment as dictator and consul. In return for his loyalty, Caesar made Lepidus governor of a province in Spain as well as his master of the horse, which is a fancy title that actually means the dictator's right-hand man. While the position was technically temporary, Caesar gave Lepidus the title again once Caesar was proclaimed dictator for life. After Caesar's assassination, Lepidus planned to call together his armies in order to hunt down Caesar's killers. He was dissuaded from immediately starting another war by Mark Antony. In the meantime, he was named as Caesar's replacement as Pontifex Maximus, the highest religious position in the Roman Republic. And that's where I'll leave off for now until we get into the story proper. 
In the meantime, not to spoil an over 2,000 year old story, Lepidus will take the role of Marcus Licinius Crassus in this story. Lepidus is often sidelined in most narratives of the Second Triumvirate, despite having an incredible resume within the late Republic. In fact, he appears in two plays by Shakespeare, the two being Julius Caesar and Antony and Cleopatra, and is depicted as completely incompetent in both of them. Lepidus was not incompetent, but he was not as powerful of a character as our next two members of the Triumvirate. Mark Antony was thought to have been a bit of a party boy in his youth. Apparently, he amassed a humongous amount of debt, but instead of paying it, ran away to Greece to start anew. He then joined the Roman military in Syria, where he quickly began to show his worth as a soldier. He participated in Roman victories in the East that helped return Rome's allies to their seats of power, one of these allies being the father of Cleopatra. Via help from one of his patrons, in 54 BCE, Antony secured a position in Caesar's army in Gaul, which is the Roman name for present-day France. He quickly gained the notice of Caesar by once more showing off his military expertise. The two became friends, so Caesar helped Antony out by sending him back to Rome in order to begin a political career. In 52 BCE, Antony was made a quaestor, which was essentially a member of the treasury during the Republic era. After getting started in politics, he was quickly shipped back to Gaul where he participated in the Battle of Alesia, the last major battle between Caesar's army and the Celtic people of Gaul. With both a political title and further military honor, Antony was promoted to legate, essentially a high-ranking general, and gave the command of two legions. He would remain in Gaul for another two years to help finalize Caesar's conquest of the territory. It was around this time that things were really starting to heat up in Rome. Crassus was dead, and Caesar and Pompey were falling out of favor with each other. Antony was sent back to Rome where he received further political ranks which he used in order to try to protect Caesar's image. It worked for a bit until Caesar's most vocal opponents really started cracking down on the future dictator. When it was clear that the Senate's opinions of Caesar had completely soured, Antony fled from Rome to rejoin Caesar's army just in time for them to march across the Rubicon. Once Caesar had control of Italy, he made Antony governor, though Lepidus would actually handle most of the administrative duties. Throughout his entire time as governor of Italy, which occurred both during and after Caesar's civil war, Antony proved to be fairly unpopular in the position. I guess, luckily for the people, Antony wasn't really in Rome for a bit because he left once more to join Caesar's army in the war against Pompey. Most historians from the time consider him to have acted as second-in-command, and also almost as popular among the soldiers as their leader. Under Caesar as dictator for life, Antony faced a bit of fluctuation in popularity, even with Caesar himself. However, they managed to work things out and Antony even became the head priest of Caesar's pseudo-religious cult. In a famous story, Antony presented Caesar with a crown during a public festival, making it seem as if he was asking Caesar to be king. Caesar publicly refused the crown, but it's unknown if Antony and Caesar had already planned that out. 
then, Caesar was assassinated. In the immediate aftermath, Antony actually fled from Rome fearing that he was next. When this proved not to be the case, he returned to the city in order to help calm things down. He had been co-consul with Caesar that year, and now as the sole consul in Rome, it was his duty to set things right. And he managed to do a good job of that until Caesar's funeral. During the ceremony, Antony, who was giving the eulogy, brought out Caesar's toga he had been wearing the day he died, which was still covered in blood. His impassioned speech caused mass riots, which in turn made most of the liberatores who were still in Rome flee for their lives. Antony quickly sought to solidify himself as Caesar's successor, but that ignored the man who, now legally through Caesar's will, was the deceased dictator's rightful heir. The future Caesar Augustus was born Gaius Octavius in 63 BCE, making him 20 years younger than Antony and 26 years younger than Lepidus. Obviously, that age gap won't mean much in the long run. He was born into a wealthy noble family, and his mother was Caesar's niece. He entered the public eye at a young age, somewhere around age 11 or 12, after speaking at his grandmother's funeral, this grandmother being Caesar's sister. Caesar immediately took a liking to the boy and saw a greatness in his future. He originally wanted Octavian to join the military campaign to subdue Pompey's allies in Africa, at this point Pompey had been assassinated, but Octavian's mother forbade him from going. Luckily, Octavian would get a second chance when Caesar once more invited him to join his military campaign in Spain. By this time, Octavian was around 19 years old, so his mother agreed to let him join his great uncle. Unfortunately, Octavian got sick and couldn't leave with Caesar. When he finally did get better, Octavian went off on his own, was shipwrecked, and then had to travel through enemy territory in order to join Caesar's army. Now incredibly impressed with the young man, upon returning to Rome, Caesar updated his will to make Octavian the primary beneficiary of his wealth and estate, as well as legal heir. Octavian was not in Rome when Julius Caesar was assassinated. His great-uncle had been preparing for a war against the Parthian Empire out east and was having his heir trained in present-day Albania to take on a formal military role. But, Unlike Antony, Octavian decided to head back to Rome instead of seeking refuge with the military in Macedonia. Once he was back in Italy, Octavian learned of Caesar's will. He changed his name to Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus, though in most records he seems to have just gone by Gaius Caesar. For clarity's sake in this show, I'll keep referring to him as Octavian. Octavian quickly began forming his own army, using his newfound power as the legal heir of Julius Caesar to curry favor with Caesar's senior military officers and the troops that were meant to fight the Parthians. By May in 44 BCE, Octavian had returned to Rome, yet found Caesar's assailants still within the city, and in a bizarre truce with Mark Antony. The Senate, mostly the Optimate faction, hated Mark Antony. Even though Octavian was Caesar's rightful heir, 
Antony was acting as if he was the second coming of the former dictator. Therefore, the Optimates realized that he had to go. He had enacted too many rules that Caesar had championed, as well as filling in positions previously held by Caesar with members of the pro-Caesar legion, such as making Lepidus the Pontifex Maximus. In order to further solidify his friendship with Lepidus, Antony had their children get married. But with Octavian's return to Rome, Antony suddenly felt his position weaken. Though Octavian was Caesar's successor, therefore making him part of the Populares, the Optimates viewed him as the lesser of two evils and began figuring out ways to get him to replace Antony. Meanwhile, Octavian was also using his newfound power to champion the causes of Caesar. Knowing his 15 minutes of fame were almost up, Antony made a last-ditch effort to retain some form of dignity and passed laws that would make him the governor of the province of Cisalpine Gaul starting at the beginning of next year. He then noped out of Rome in an attempt to start his governing term early. Just one problem. The current governor of Cisalpine Gaul, Decimus Junius Brutus, our other Brutus's brother and also one of Caesar's assassins, was still there and very much in power. And even though he was in a rocky position, Antony decided that he would take the province by force in December of 44 BCE. This was met with immediate outrage by everyone. The Senate turned to Lepidus, who was in Spain, to handle Antony, but he managed to talk his way out of directly confronting Antony's army. Octavian, on the other hand, had no qualms about going to war with Mark Antony, even if it meant protecting the life of one of Caesar's assassins. Octavian was most likely willing to do this in order to gain power for himself that he felt was rightfully his, what with being the heir of Julius Caesar. After a brutal battle, Antony was forced to retreat. Octavian had been the victor, but the Senate instead decided to heap praises upon Decimus Brutus and tried to force Octavian to give up his legions. Octavian refused, and instead sent a group of centurions back to Rome demanding Octavian be given the position of consul, as well as reversing the decision to name Antony a public enemy. The Senate refused. Two things then happened next. First, Antony joined up with Lepidus, and the two formed a pact with each other. Second, Octavian himself marched eight legions into Rome and personally demanded the seat of consulship. The Senate gave in to the demands of the very dangerous 20-year-old. After gaining power and bringing about some semblance of peace, Octavian reached out to the other two leaders of the pro-Caesar faction, Antony and Lepidus. The three men agreed that Rome was unstable in the wake of Caesar's death. It needed someone, or maybe three someones, to guide it back to peace. And thus, in October of 43 BCE, the Second Triumvirate was formed. A month later in November, the Senate passed the landmark legislation known as the Lex Titia, officially recognizing the Second Triumvirate as a political power for the next five years. And, as consul, Octavian made the Senate pass the Lex Pedia, a formal condemnation of Julius Caesar's assassins. With these laws, the Second Triumvirate could now go to war. 
Let's catch up with Brutus. Not Decimus Junius Brutus, but his brother. THE Brutus, as I'd like to call him. Well, he was in Greece slowly gathering power and listening to the words of Cicero, a very vocal member of the Senate who had been anti-Caesar. By the time the Second Triumvirate had formed, Brutus had control over the eastern half of the Republic, including Greece, Turkey, and northern Africa. Before Octavian had actually gained the position of consul, Cicero had begged Brutus to march on the young man's army in order to restore peace. Obviously, this didn't end up happening, and unfortunately, Brutus's head was put on the chopping block when the Lex Pedia was issued. So Brutus and his allies got to work seizing cities throughout the east. Let's now jump back to the Triumvirate in Rome. With the Lex Pedia came the Act of Prescription, which in this case meant the killing or banishment, and afterwards seizure of property, of Caesar's assassins and their allies. The reward for an assassin's head was 2,500 drachmae, which you'll just have to trust me is a lot in today's money. Ancient money conversion is hard. Among some of the more famous initial casualties of the prescriptions were Decimus Brutus and Cicero, though I'll go more into Cicero's death if slash when I finally get around to doing his story. In 42 BCE, the Second Triumvirate locked in on their main targets. Brutus, his fellow assassin Gaius Cassius Longinus, and Sextus Pompey, the son of Pompey the Great, who despite not being one of Caesar's assassins was basically added in because Caesar's civil war was still in recent memory. The plan was for Octavian and Antony to sail east in order to take on Brutus and Cassius. To secure their power in Rome, Lepidus was elected as consul for the year 42, and that will basically be Lepidus's last hurrah. He doesn't die in 42 BCE, but choosing to stay back from the fighting is what would ultimately lead to Lepidus becoming a background character to Antony and Octavian. The two other triumvirs met up with Brutus and Cassius near Philippi, Greece in October of that year. There were two main conflicts, the first seeing the two triumvirs split up to take on each of the Liberatores. Antony easily fought back Cassius, who in turn committed suicide before he was captured. Brutus had Octavian almost beat until he learned of Cassius's defeat. Brutus then rallied Cassius's remaining troops for a later battle. Unfortunately, Antony and Octavian together prevailed over Brutus's men, forcing Brutus to run away where he would later kill himself. With the Liberatores finally defeated, the Second Triumvirate had full control over the Republic, and with all that territory in their command, it was time to divvy up the spoils, aka who got to control which part of the Roman Republic. Like I said, Lepidus was now kinda pushed aside, therefore he got the smallest piece, the northwest coast of Africa. The rest of the Republic was divided in two, with Octavian getting the west, which included Gaul and Hispania, and Antony getting the east, which included Greece, Turkey, Syria, and even though it was independent, kinda also Egypt? I'll put up maps on social media so you can see who had what exact locations. Ultimately, Antony did get the better part of the deal. Like with the first triumvirate, the second attempt at a three-man rule began to come apart at the seams. Lepidus was slowly losing ground compared to Octavian and Antony. 
It didn't help that in 42 BCE, Julius Caesar was deified, meaning that Octavian could legally call himself the son of a god, which he very much did. In his day-to-day -day life, he went by Imperator Caesar, Imperator meaning more or less the same as Commander. Things really hit a snag after the defeat of the Liberatores. After returning to Rome, Octavian sought to give each of his soldiers their own land. One of the key figures that stood opposed to this was Antony's brother, Lucius Antonius, who was serving as consul in 41 BCE. Lucius joined together with Antony's wife, Fulvia, to stand up against Octavian. Another civil war erupted. Lucius Antonius defeated Lepidus' armies, but Octavian would eventually triumph over the rebels. And where was Antony during all of this? Still out east. Less than a year later, Antony's wife died, and, in a show of camaraderie, Octavian gave his elder sister Octavia in marriage to Antony in a public display of, yeah, we're still bros, don't worry. Fast forward a few years to 37 BCE, and the second triumvirate is renewed for another five years. However, a year later in 36 BCE, after failing to defeat Sextus Pompey and needing the support of Octavian, Lepidus was kicked out of the group and exiled to the city of Circei, Italy. The Republic was now divided in two. It was also around this time that Octavian married his third wife, Livia Drusilla, who would go on to become his empress. About at the same time, Antony had led a failed campaign against the Parthian Empire. In order to escape to safety, he sought refuge with the pharaoh of Egypt, Cleopatra. Antony and Cleopatra hit it off immediately, despite the fact that Antony was married to Octavian's sister. The pair had three children together, which was fuel Octavian used in order to disparage Antony's political career. He accused Antony of giving up Rome in order to live the life of an Egyptian. Now, in ancient Rome, the thought of giving up your Roman identity was one of the greatest social crimes a person could commit. It didn't help that Antony refused to leave the city of Alexandria, Egypt. But perhaps his greatest slight against Octavian came with Cleopatra's first son, Caesarion. Caesarion was Cleopatra's son by Julius Caesar, though he was never legally recognized. Antony sought to change that, which would give less legitimacy to Octavian. If you couldn't tell, the two men really hated each other by this point. There were plenty of rumors going around that Mark Antony wanted to become the sole ruler of Rome and change the Republic's capital to Alexandria. Delegitimizing Octavian would be a massive step in that regard. From 33 to 32 BCE, the two men waged wars of propaganda against each other. Antony accused Octavian of forging Caesar's will to make him the dictator's heir. Octavian then accused Antony of treason. Antony then officially divorced Octavia, even though the couple hadn't really been together for several years. Around this time, the Second Triumvirate's official reign had reached its end. It was very obvious that it would not be renewed for a third term. And even though it was over, Antony would still choose to go by the title Triumvir. The final straw came when Octavian managed to get a hold of Antony's will and read it before the Senate. 
It stated that Antony devised to divide up the land into kingdoms that his three children through Cleopatra would reign over. It was an immediate scandal further exasperated by Antony marrying Cleopatra. Octavian pressured the Senate to wage war against his ex-triumvir, but the senators were hesitant to wage a war against Antony, who was, despite everything, a Roman war hero. Still determined to get his way, Octavian then convinced the Senate to wage war against Cleopatra. Hey, there's still time for one more civil war in this story. The ensuing conflict, called the War of Actium, was the final civil war of the Roman Republic. In the immediate aftermath of the declaration of war, Antony was stripped of all honors and labeled a traitor of the Republic. However, that didn't stop 40% of the Senate, including both consuls of the year 32 BCE, from defecting to Antony's side. In the summer of the following year, Antony led an army across the Mediterranean Sea in Greece near the town of Actium. Octavian quickly swooped in with forces both on land and sea. This naval course of action soon proved to be Antony's downfall. Despite having risen to fame as a war hero, Mark Antony was inexperienced as a naval commander. It also did not help that Antony's commanders were unhappy and slightly demoralized by Cleopatra's presence in the war. In the Roman Republic, war and politics were the place for big, strong men, no girls allowed. Seeing this state of morality, Octavian furthered his propaganda train with some absolutely great misogynistic stuff, like Cleopatra's presence poisoning Antony's mind. And unfortunately, that worked. Antony's armies faced mass desertions. But despite all that, he still outnumbered Octavian's forces. But like I said, Antony was not a naval commander, and his army was in a pitiful state. His forces were being overwhelmed, forcing Antony and Cleopatra to retreat back to Egypt, leaving behind his forces on land. Those armies would eventually surrender to Octavian. While Caesar's heir wanted to directly pursue his foe, Octavian's army desired to return to private life for a time, meaning he had to wait until the following spring to pursue Antony once more. Once spring came, he took the long way around through the Middle East in order to block any support the local leaders there could provide to Antony and Cleopatra. Once he arrived in Egypt, Octavian laid siege to the city of Alexandria. Mark Antony had no armies, no way of garnering any further support. The great hero had fallen to rock bottom. Seeing no other way out of his situation, and choosing to maintain his pride as a Roman soldier, on August 1st, 30 BCE, Antony killed himself. Some more romantic versions of the story say that his suicide was not immediately successful. Mortally wounded, he was brought to Cleopatra and died in her arms. After receiving word of Antony's death, Octavian attempted to negotiate terms of peace with Cleopatra. Unfortunately, she refused after Octavian kidnapped her children. She would have also been put on display during Octavian's triumph. Cleopatra would then commit suicide, and with that, Octavian emerged victorious as the last member of the Second Triumvirate.
Rome was his. That's where we'll leave the story for now, at least Octavian's. When we next pick up the Julio-Claudian saga, he will finally become Caesar Augustus, the first emperor of Rome. But that's a story for another time. But it's not the immediate end of the Second Triumvirate. Antony might be dead, but Lepidus was still alive throughout all of this. Also, he was still Pontifex Maximus. He remained in exile for the rest of his life. After Antony's death, his son attempted to assassinate Octavian but failed, meaning Lepidus no longer had a son. After that, the only news we get about the third triumvir is that sometimes he was allowed to go back to Rome in order to participate in the Senate. Allegedly, the emperor would constantly belittle his former comrade and always ask for his vote last. He died in the year 13 BCE at the age of 76. The title of Pontifex Maximus passed on to Emperor Augustus. All the power of the state was now his. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and subscribe to the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. The show will be going on break again after this episode, I'll talk to you all again in about a month. Be sure to stay tuned to the feed for any announcements of when the show will be back. And I know I don't do the usual call to action, but it would be really cool if you rated the show on whatever platform you use and maybe even leave a review. It's especially helpful during these breaks. But when we do come back, we're taking a look at this story from another angle. I did say earlier that I wouldn't talk much about Cleopatra this episode for a reason, and that's because when Royally Screwed returns, we're getting her full story as the last true pharaoh of Egypt. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. (laughs) 